And uh, Luther said of this text that we're at, he said, it's a wonderful text and a more obscure passage than other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means, as uh, Luther concluded with that. And as angels fear to tread, of course, uh, fools will now rush in. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> um, this is a, a paragraph that is um, very obscure in some ways. And, of course, we know Peter talked about some of Paul's epistles being very hard to understand. Uh, he said that in Second uh, Peter. Uh, 2 Peter 3.16 says, in which are some things hard to understand. Well, here we have a uh, little bit of a difficulty understanding what Peter is saying, and I'm sure Paul might have said the same thing. But um, anyway, we know there's a a general meaning uh, that's all across in this passage, what he's really trying to get across anyway. Um, it, It commences, which declares the suffering of Christ, and then goes all the way through and concludes with the triumph of Christ, just in these uh, five verses, 18 through 22. And really, as far as essentials to the faith, uh, it's very clear, unambiguous, no difficulty understanding what's really trying to be brought across here. Um, And it's really showing that Christ did not deserve the suffering that he got because he was perfectly innocent. Peter has mentioned that several times already, hasn't he? And so he's bringing this to this conclusion. And Peter's intention is to encourage the readers at that time and to encourage us um, to keep persevering in all the sufferings that they're going through that there's a coming triumph. The triumph is always in Christ. Christ suffered. Christ triumphed. He was risen. He was exalted. And because of that, that's what we have to look to. So just before, in verse 17, Peter has called Christians to suffer if that is God's will for them to do. You remember, he has stated that. And it says, it's better if God should will it so that she should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And sometimes it is God's will that we suffer for doing what is right. Now, that's not an easy thing to swallow. We don't really like to hear that that much. So we need a little help with this, and that's why Peter encourages uh, all of us on. We need understanding. We need encouragement. We need hope. And uh, if God is going to will that we do suffer for what is right, then uh, we want to make sure that um, we see what Peter is saying and understand that, take it in. Um, So he's beginning to explain why or sometimes what God's will for us is in doing what is right and this happening. Um, It's an explanation for a call to suffer. Now, if we look at the connection between what we were ending with last week and what we just talked about, God's will, if you look in chapter 4, verse 1, which would be the very next verse after our 22 here that ends the chapter. Therefore, right, since... Christ has suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God. So that kind of ties everything up and to where everything is really heading. And so Peter's preparing them. The main point, 
You know, the main point here for all the puzzling verses that we have to deal with sometimes, there's always a main point that's behind it though. Peter's intention here in this text is to arm us with what we need. What does that uh, uh, Alistair Begg says all the time? The main thing is the plain thing and let the plain things be the main thing. So really most of the time, the Bible is very plain. It is very plain to God. <laughs> it's just that we are humans and we um, we still struggle with sin and uh, our brains are not infinite. We are finite beings. So we really have to dig into the Bible to get a lot of our answers. And then even then, we're not quite settled with them. And that's what's amazing about God's Word. It's, it's simple for anybody to read, but yet it's so profound that we continue to dig into these rare jewels that He has. And you never know what you might find if you stay in God's Word. It's always there. So, uh, none of this should sound irrelevant to us, even though we are Americans. I think we're insulated in some senses from a bigger world outside of our little country. Uh, we're at, at best 5% of all the total of what's in the world. And as far as the era that we live in, uh, let's say it takes 6,000 years, just throw that out, uh, of mankind. About 5% of that, you know, a, a little bit of time, uh, of the church age during that time. Most of the world, most of history, um, the Christian in the world has not really been that safe. If uh, you look down through church history, uh, Stephen Neal wrote a book called The History of Christian Missions. He said in the first three centuries, when the church was spreading like wildfire, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. So they all knew that they could lose their lives if they give a testimony of their faith. Now, can you imagine doing evangelism in that kind of context? Knowing that what you're telling somebody is that they could lose their life if they become a Christian. Um, of course, I think Jesus said those kind of things. Um, boy, uh, we have a normalcy in our society today, and Christians have it really safe. Um, most of the time, but that has not really been the case down through church history and, and even today in our time. We call them closed countries. You ever heard of that? It's a nice, comfortable word to put. Like, we're normal and they're not normal. And it's not normal to have closed countries. Well, really, it kind of is. It's not normal in the situation that we've been uh, for the most part. Uh, Sometimes I think there's a, a false assumption that safety is normal. But you look through church history and, and you recognize that it's a little bit different than I think we American Christians sometimes um, can identify with. Um, not anything our fault, it's just that's where we were placed in this time. But um, So Jesus said, you will be hated by all nations. Um, Sometimes we as Christians here in America, when things don't go our way, and looking at what Peter has said in First Peter, the atmosphere here sometimes seems that Christians will be mean-spirited in the public square. 
because the liberals, the humanists, the secular humanists, the uh, cultural elites have taken our Christian world from us. And, yeah, I, I don't like to see things like... I, I like to see a nation stand for righteousness. You guys do too. And I, I don't like it when things go wrong. I mean, we, we shouldn't. I mean, we should have a righteous anger. But sometimes Christians don't act like Christians because of things that have changed. And uh, so standing for righteousness, but yet not looking like the Christian that they're to be, as Peter has given us examples of that. Um, remember in First Peter 4.12, and I have to remember it too much because it's a chapter that's ahead, but you've read it before. <laughs> Do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> so it's not that strange, is it? So, in this text today, which we're going to go ahead and read here, Peter here is really trying to stress to be ready because if the suffering comes, God is willing it. And that's why verses 18 through 22 really are written here. Starting at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. You start out in verse 18. You see the suffering. Then you see death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the triumph. That's what you see in those five verses. Really, you could outline it that way. Um, it starts off with Christ suffering and, and dying for sins. Now, you probably saw some uh, strange verses, which you've probably read in your time, where he makes proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Then he brings up uh, Noah and uh, the eight. And then he talks about bad, baptism that now saves you. Those are rather uh, interesting uh, parts of that section that that you deal with. And you go, what does that have to do with where we've been and where we're going? And uh, hopefully we can, we can help out a little bit. Uh, throughout the New Testament, the mindset of Christianity is our Lord suffered, we will follow Him in suffering. What did Paul say? Oh, that I may know Him and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. So, let's start off with um, Christ also died for our sins. Once for all. Just for the unjust. Bringing us to God. Putting to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. That's, that's loaded there. Just that one verse. And this is dealing with atonement. This is the heart of the Gospel. I, I, I love this, this verse here because it hits it right on the head as, as far as what uh, Christ did. And of course, when you think of atonement, what do you think of? You, you think of Old Testament? 
You think of the sacrifices that were done in the temple. Uh, the, of course, there was the Holy of Holies, uh, the atonement, uh, the mercy seat, the covering, right? Uh, and so that that's having close identity with that sacrifice, which is meaning we have close identity with our sacrifice, Jesus, who also died. And when you think of sacrifice, you have to think of, uh, of course, you think of atonement. And often, it seems today, that word is kind of been thrown aside. And it's a key word. So it's great. It's great for a Christian. Because in that, we in this atonement, we get the idea of propitiation. Which, anybody want to give that one a shot? What's propitiation? That great big word. Price is the price. The price has been paid by Christ. What do we have back there? The atoning sacrifice. God is satisfied. God is satisfied with all that. Yeah. Um, you get the word substitution. And when you see that little three-letter word for Christ died, like you think of the just for the unjust, Christ died for us. Christ died for sins. Substitution, He takes the place of. We should have been there. God is satisfied with that sacrifice. Um, Our place was taken by Jesus in that uh, terrible death that he had that was really for our benefit. Um, propitiation, substitution. Can you think of any other words that go along with that? How about penal? What does that bring to mind? The penal substitution. What is that? Punishment. Penal. Punishment. Um, he took on our sins. He had that the punishment happened there. The judgment happened there. And of course, in Isaiah 53, it says that the Father was pleased, and that brings you back to the propitiation. But um, that's a word that definitely offends many people today. That God would send His Son to be punished. And so that word is pretty well taken out. Uh, propitiation definitely is. Uh, even atonement, like the New Age people like to do this with atonement. They'll divide that word up. At one, you're at one with your own soul. So, but that's not what a, atonement means, does it? Uh, also, there's uh, expiation that happens with this, which means the sins are taken away; they're cast out. So expiation, propitiation, substitution, penal, um, sacrificial. Somebody said that. A lot of things going on here dealing with this. Uh, yeah, we could just 
Yeah, that means he's reconciling. He brings us who were outside or because of our offense with him. We couldn't make a step towards him, but he draws us in with that. So uh, that brings us into that kind of right relationship. That's what the sacrifice does. You could probably go on and on with uh, who knows how many uh, different kind of words that tell what happened. At the cross, deep subject, isn't it? It's never gets old, does it? We need to hear it constantly. So he was actually put to death. It wasn't a natural death. He was put to death. It was a penal death. He was put to death for our sins. Sacrifice. All those words are applying there. And he goes on to say, for Christ also died for sins. Our sins. That's the problem, isn't it? What's the next phrase? Once for all. Once for all. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. It is done. doesn't need to be done anymore. It's final. It's Absolutely all sufficient. The price has been paid. It's been accomplished. The price has been paid. The work has been accomplished. The forgiveness for all who will believe, right? And there has to be, there doesn't have to be any more sacrifices. It was uh, all necessary. And all the guilt was taken away. Right there at the cross. And dead is paid in full. You can think of many songs, right? Um, I have to think of Hebrews. And all we have to do is back up a couple of books here. In Hebrews chapter 9. Twenty-four. We can start there. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. Now he's comparing it. He's, he's talking to the, to the Hebrew people, Jewish people, and thinking temple and such, comparing with that. And then he's, he's talking about now the ultimate sacrifice. He did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and this come judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Offered once, once, once. Right? Hebrews keeps mentioning that. I, I think in chapter 10 um, you will get the same thought uh, around verse 12. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The work is done. The work is accomplished. can't be anything else to do. We can't add to it. It's final. It's done. It can never be repeated. Now, the Reformation 
was really, really important because it struck at that matter. This was one of the heart, uh, the heart of the matter when you think of uh, uh, the Luthers, the Calvins, the Zwinglies, and on and on. Because the Roman church has at the heart of its worship this um, the Mass, for instance. And that really is a perpetual sacrifice. We know that once for all means that's it. The Vatican II Council, when they got together, drew up a constitution on is dealing with the sacred literature. And this is the most up-to-date, and this is not even ripping, trying to rip apart any kind of denomination or anything. It says, here is what they write down for what they believe the sacrifice is. Hence, the Mass, the Lord's Supper, is at the same time and inseparably a sacrifice. I'm going to read on through and I'll come back with that. In which the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated, for in it Christ perpetuates in an unbloody manner the sacrifice offered on the cross offering Himself to the Father for the world's salvation through the ministry of the priests. A lot of errors there, biblically. Uh, inseparably a sacrifice. So they, they claim that that sacrifice of the Mass, and that's what it's called, it is a sacrifice. I've talked with several Catholics and that's where I like to get to. If I can, I like to talk about the sacrifice of the Mass. And they say, oh no, that's a communion for the community of people. And it's really not a sacrifice. Well, according to Vatican II, it is a sacrifice. It is literally put there and it says inseparably a sacrifice. You cannot separate it from the sacrifice that Christ did. And then it talks about the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated. That means it goes on and on and on and on. Somewhere in the world right now, there is a sacrifice of the Mass going on. And that will go all across the world. There's constantly a sacrifice going. And that's how Christ, in an unbloody sacrifice, offers Himself on the cross today. He continues to do it. And Jesus says, It is finished. The Hebrew writer who writes to the Jewish people who had a perpetual sacrifice going on, a yearly atonement, day of atonement, and then they had the priest ministering in the temple day after day 